You know, I'm starting to think this really is the TOS kind of thing. We're just bouncing back and forth between ugh, episodes and ah, episodes. Just I like this one. Uh, and not just because Hertzler's in it, although he absolutely nails the role. This is by David Goodman. Uh, he's an interesting writer to think about because he wrote Precious Cargo, which, yeah. But he'll also write The Forgotten, which, by memory, is one of my favorite episodes. He is also currently working over on The Orville. So he ended up getting poached to that project uh, as a producer, specifically. Interesting to think about. <clears throat> Star Trek usually has good trial episodes. You ever notice that? It's weirdly common. And we could dissect and analyze why, but I think we've already done so. But the point is, it's true. Over in DS9, TNG, Voyager, and Enterprise, trial episodes tend to just kind of work better. Maybe it's because the format of this show and the very nature of Trek, a.k.a. science fiction character-driven drama, tends to work and lean itself towards the kind of things that make that work, right? Like, it's a good format. It's a good fit. I don't know. What I do think is that this episode, <laughs> they really like to go all in on the references. Now, all of this is apparently deliberate by Mr. Goodman. He himself has gone on record saying that he put a ton of references in, and most of them did actually stick. My favorite reference is one that's not actually on camera, but is in the script. This trial is taking place on the planet Narendra 3. Cute. So... Oh, also, Duras's ship. Duras's ship is named the Bortos. That one got a laugh out of me. I suppose I'll explain both of those. For those of you who don't remember, Narendra 3 was the planet during which the, uh, over which the Enterprise C ended up being destroyed in order to save the relations between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. And, of course, the Bortos was the name of Gowron's ship over in the future, which um, could imply a lot of things, but it's obviously just amusing since that was the ship Gowron was using while he was fighting the Duras Rebellion. It does imply that the Duras family certainly had some weight and power even this far back. It's also interesting to note, if you're paying attention, the Duras here doesn't have a ton of political clout or influence. In fact, he's publicly shamed during this trial. Just interesting to think about how this lowly individual would eventually become in charge of his own house, or however that would actually end up lining up. We'll actually talk a little bit more about Duras in the future, but... For now, they do a good job with the limits of that, that they have, the budget, uh, you know, the budget limit, limits of a television show. You'll notice that they're still kind of throwing their weight financially into certain aspects of this show. Well, and that makes sense, since not only were they trying to make it work, but more importantly, this episode was being was still being made prior to, you know, it was still in production prior to Nemesis. Although, actually, I looked at the numbers. I think I mentioned this before. The Crossing, the previous episode, that's... Uh, so, obviously, television is made well before episodes come out. And they were still working on The Crossing well before Nemesis came out. I point out The Crossing specifically because that's about when they finished production on Nemesis was when they were finishing production on Crossing. Maybe? And I'm going to emphasize that word because sometimes they give us very specific details of when they finish principal shooting and secondary shooting and when the scripts are turned in. And then sometimes they don't. So I'm kind of going off of vague presumptions here. Because they have some episodes which I have info of, and some episodes which I have info of after, but I'm not sure exactly when it happened in between. So I'm guessing it was during the crossing. But that's relevant, 
because while these episodes were still being made, there still wasn't a plug pulled. In fact, I'm going to be trying to pay attention to when exactly the plug is pulled with regards to both production and release, since both are relevant. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Point is, there was still some money and budget being thrown at the episode. What's interesting, though, how many of you notice the fact that they duplicate the crowd? Literally duplicate. Like, they do the long shot, and you could see the crowd, and then you could see the crowd up here, and it's the same crowd. It's, it's just copy-pasted up there. I say just. It's a good effect, and they do a good job of masking it. I imagine most people watching on a television wouldn't even notice, so actually this is praise, not, co not complaints. It's a good way to make the set look much bigger than it is and still accommodate the limitations of the budget. <sighs> yeah, so you're on attack, and then there's an interesting bit where Starfleet and the Vulcans are both politically moving to try and have Archer released. Huh. That makes me interested in several ways, but I'm not going to go too much into that. It just is interesting since, well, they flat out mention that they're being lenient by only charging Archer and not charging his crew and or charging the government and or declaring war on, I keep wanting to say the Federation, on EarthGov, you know, on Starfleet, which would also entail war against the Vulcans, which they may or may not be okay with since the Klingons are probably the actual biggest kids in the block right now. Interesting to think about in its own right, though, since, well, if a captain really is an officiate of the state, I know I keep bringing that up, and I know it's just pure headcanon, but it is interesting to think about if, if a member of the state who is a representative of the state is tried, charged with a criminal act, that can reflect on the state and give proper reasons for war or maybe political capital, which can be used against the state, and that might actually be what the Klingons are thinking here, and why they're specifically trying so hard to get Archer convicted, because then they could use that. I know you're thinking, oh, that's too conniving for Klingons. And then I point to this very episode. <laughs> I don't think that's too conniving for Klingons, to be completely blunt. Especially not these ones. Just interesting to think about. The... I say that too much. I apologize. It, it's, it's something I say because I mean it. I, I do find a lot of things fascinating to think about. But also because it gives me a moment to check my notes and make sure that I don't miss anything, because I don't want to miss anything here. And a lot of my notes are shorthand, so I have to take a moment to collect my thoughts. And I don't want you to just sit here with dead space with me thinking, okay, what's the next thing here? Let's see. It looks to be... And of course, I don't want this to turn into every other YouTube video in the universe where every single thing is super hyper-edited to the point where there's no pauses in between anything I say. So all you have is this nonstop cavalcade of information. Like, you've seen what that looks like right here. Tell you what. I'll demonstrate, okay? So just for the next few sentences. So one of the most interesting parts about this is the fact that Duras has been demoted. Obviously, being demoted in this manner was going to cause a, a lot of ripples with regards to him if he actually has any political capital or influence within the Empire. But assuming he doesn't have that influence, and this is just the beginnings of his career, which is something that I am presuming, it is interesting to note that despite everything, he is still being punished for his failure to uh, properly bring back these people, which actually makes a degree of sense given the way that this particular system and the corruption therein is being showcased. It's also funny to me, especially given the fact that Duras specifically goes out of his way to slant his story so ridiculously that it's hard to believe this is the battle cruiser. Enterprise. Ah! And I love his ridiculous take on things. It is so slanted. Oh my god. Yes, we must have the death to the Empire. I shall assist these people in rebellion. And blah, 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 blah. But what's actually funny here... Okay, I'm going to stop the edits now. <clears throat> Future me. Don't edit after this point. What I love about this, though, is he gives this super slanted events, and it doesn't matter. Because the only thing that really matters is the fact that he attacked the Enterprise, failed to take it, which is why he's being shamed, but the Enterprise was willing to defend it, so 
uh, was willing to defend itself. All that editing was, was tiring against the Bortas. Therefore, he's guilty the end. Just trying to line... that, And that's the thrust of his argument. Archer is an enemy of the Empire, therefore. And I want that to be important. I want you to realize that, because that's the pillar, the central strength of the prosecutor's argument. Uh, prosecutor Gull... I, I mean... <laughs> What is his name, actually? Orak. Orak is his name. Sorry. I remember him as the, the, the evil gull from the end of DS9. You remember him? He actually played someone else. I don't remember off the top of my head. What really matters, though, <clears throat> Duros was winning, of course. Naturally, he was winning, but, but he still lost. And that's the funny part, is the Klingons are just like, oh, so you lost. Well, but he only won through treachery. Yes, but you lost. Get out of this. Get out of my sight. It was actually rather amusing to see that, and that'll come up later. So, then they decide, tell you what, we'll go ahead and give you leniency if you share info. That part amused me. This is probably the major reason why they are bothering with the trial at all. Not only for the political capital reason I mentioned earlier, but also to bully Archer into compliance. <laughs> later on in this very episode, Kolov's Kolos mentions that this is how trials have gone for 20 years. He just stands there and does whatever. And he doesn't say this outright, but it is implied that several times in the past, a similar attempt, a, a plea bargain, if you will, has been offered. What I find most amusing about this is this is showcasing an evil, corrupt justice system. This is how real life works here in the States. For those of you not aware, this is, and this is not hyperbole, the prosecutor's offices in most counties in here in the United States, their standard operating procedure in criminal courts is to try and terrify and bully the defense into accepting a plea bargain. Now, there's lots of reasons for this, and I'm not going to go off on that tangent right now, although I certainly could. But I bring this up because th this episode slants this as this big, corrupt, you know, dying thing and how it's this horrible thing and we must stand against this injustice and that's just how it is in real life now the reason i find this so amusing i think this is one of those accidental allegories i don't think the writers especially mr goodman knew enough about real life criminal justice matters to know that this is just how it is i think he was just portraying this in this manner and it happens to be that way I bring this up because intent does matter, especially when it comes to allegory in Star Trek. And I, I don't know, this is just my opinion, but I've always kind of liked it when Star Trek does accidental allegories. I can think of two examples that are off the top of my head. The High Ground over in TOG and the two-parter two over in DS9, uh, which is Paradise Lost and I forget the name of the other one. It's the one where they go back to Earth, you know, and there's the attempted coup, that one. Neither of those episodes were intended, by all accounts, and I've covered both episodes by now, all three, rather. They were not intended as allegories. They simply happened to be that way. And I think the strength of that was that rather... The, because it's the intent changes how you approach the, the project, right? I must write a story about blah changes to I want to write this story, which happens to be about blah. The one focuses on the message. The other focuses on the story. This is why I tend to think that accidental allegory percentage-wise, tends to work out better. And, and obviously it doesn't always. Because it's just, we're just trying to tell a good story that happens to have a message in it, right? Interesting. 
I'm curious what you guys think of this one, or if you think this is deliberate or not. Unfortunately, and I've talked about this before, unlike TOS, where I had three books on my desk and, like, five websites I was cross-referencing, with Enterprise, I got nothing. So I'm not really 100%. I've got, like, the behind-the-scenes on the Blu-ray, the stuff that uh, that is in Memory Alpha, which, you know, it's, it's, that's variable usefulness. And um, that's it. <laughs> so... Don't have quite as much to draw on here. But anyways, I digress. So Archer pricks Kolos' pr- uh Nope, not his pride. He's not a Vulcan. Instead, he pricks his honor. Are you a coward? Are you afraid? And Kolos responds, no. Kolos also talks about battles and victory. And so he argues that he argues for justice with honor. You'll notice that's the only time the crowd is on the, the defense's case, by the way. Or the defense's side, rather. This also comes up a little bit later where he mentions, you know, you must show the prosecu- you must show the defense the same respect he showed you. I, I know I've talked about Klingons to death, but it is interesting that this is a good portrayal of Klingon fake honor. Yes, fake honor, specifically, the, the external honor. Because you have to still be seen as being perceived as doing the quote-unquote honorable thing. You still have to follow the rules of the game. This, my personal favorite example, this is actually the Klingon, his name I can't even remember right now, who tried to kill Cork. Cork laid down his life and said, I offer it. The Klingon's like, I'm just going to take it. And the moment he did that, everyone in the room ousted him as dishonorable because that's not how the rules go. What he should have done is he should have followed, the, there, there's, a, there's a procedure here, right? There's a pomp and a circumstance to it. And this is exactly what Kolos in this very episode pleased to. You will listen to me as I have listened to you. This man has acted with honor defending his own crew, basically swaying in the direction of showing that Archer has fake honor, which is funny because he actually has real honor, but that's not relevant here. In fact, the real honor Archer has is the part that he lists as a negative thing and flat out calls it a nuisance. Anyways, I'm sure he would think the same thing of Worf. I want to just go ahead and mention that Hertzler really does nail it. I'm not sure, like, over the years, I've seen a lot of people play Klingons, and I've seen a decent amount, number of people play Klingons well. But I think Hertzler still kind of nails it better than anyone else at the end of the day. Oh, don't mistake me, Michael Dorn is amazing, and Mr. O'Reilly is fantastic, but man. Anyways, <clears throat> so, we find out that there's a flash, so we get our second flashback. Piecemeal. They do a good job of bouncing back and forth between the flashback and the prosecutor picking at it. Not only does it help keep the pace going, but it also, because it cuts out all of the dead air that normally exists in the flashback, thus only showing you the important relevant parts of the events, but it also does a good job of kind of keeping the prosecution relevant and showcasing the actual drama on display, which is not the battle of the past, which is already concluded, but rather the battle of the present, which is currently being fought within the courtroom. And it's a nice juxtaposition, the literal battle against the Klingon D5. Oh yeah, it's actually a D5 now, guys. Remember how I made much a, such a stink about that? And so did the creative staff. This, this, we finally got it. We finally got our D5 ship. Woohoo! I said I'd bring it up. I didn't forget, even though it's been a year from my perspective. Anyways. <clears throat> so we finally got our D5 in that battle. We had that big, str- uh, difficult battle against a superior enemy. And now we're having our big, difficult battle against another superior enemy a court which is stacked against you. Trust me, that's not a fun enemy to fight. But, nevertheless, 
you know, the, the corrupt system is something they can manage to navigate through. We also hear a little bit about a very minor nitpick, if I might be so bold. And I actually have a question here. It feels like, so obviously, Duras's flashback was, was total, total lie, right? Death to the Empire, right? Do you think Archer's is the truth? Now, having said that, I think it is the truth, but I don't think that's a good thing. I think it would have been better if it was a perspective, which was shades of the truth, but not actually 100% the truth. And I think it would have been better if it was portrayed as such, rather than simply being portrayed as this is the events that actually happened. Because that's what the episode does. The episode portrays this as this is an actual flashback of actual events, rather than this is Archer reciting the events that happened. A very minor nitpick in an otherwise excellent episode. I have one more nitpick right after that. The D5 can go warp 6. Why can this bird actually do it? I mean, I know it's a cruiser. Why is this sucker so fast, substantially faster than the Enterprise? Explain that one to me. Well, I was irritated by it because one of the big points that has always been a thing in Trek is that the Federation tends to be more on the high end of the curve when it comes to uh, soft sciences, exploration, scanning, speed. And other races tend to be higher on the military sciences. Uh, uh, the perfect comparison here is look at the Galaxy-class ship versus the Dideridex Warbird, and you will see those comparisons very starkly contrasted. And then I got to thinking. One of the things that Kolos brings up in this episode, something one of my own viewers, Kira White Noise, brought up, is the idea that the Klingons got there first, and that's one of the reasons why they're so dominant, right? They, they had a big tech rush, and then they got a little bit too focused on warriors for warriors' sake, and effectively, they're, they slowed down. Like, they peaked, they, they, they plateaued in terms of tech progress. And so that's why the Empire was like, Hurrah! and then everyone else eventually surpasses them to the point where the Klingon Empire just starts falling further and further behind, which does kind of line up with a lot of what we see in the shows. And I'll be bringing up when we get to the Trek rewrite section where the Klingons are actually relevant. I bring all that up, though, because this very episode supports that idea. Kolos mentions, well, I hate to jump forward, but this is basically the next thing. Kolos mentions that his, his uh, father was a teacher, his mother was a biologist, in other words, within his lifetime, granted Klingons live into the triple-digit range easily, but within his lifetime, within one generation ago, the Klingon Empire was much more dedicated towards advancement sciences and actual honor, rather than just, rawr, stab, destroy a bunch of defenseless people, because it's honorable, hero of the Empire, for killing in his, you know, defenseless non-combatants. Now, I'm going to cover that more in a minute, but I mention it here because it might give evidence for why a ship, which, you know, is within this generation range, is top of the line. But if we fast forward a few years, that's no longer the case. Just food for thought. The... <laughs> There's this wonderful bit where uh, Kolos mentions, you know, Archer has done these great things in service of the Empire. The other guy says, no, he hasn't. And Cola says, oh, you've been complacent with your research. Can I just get a burn for that? <laughs> but it's true. Um, this is, again, a real-life problem that doesn't just face the legal system, but actually the political system in several countries, uh, most notably the one I currently live in, where they don't actually put the work and effort into trying to win. They simply presume victory because of a 
corrupt system. I'm sorry, I, I hate to get political here. I don't know how else to say that. But it, it, this isn't exclusive to the country I live in, and this isn't exclusive to the time I live in. This is a very long-standing historical problem. So we'll go ahead and phrase this with, let's say the Romans, that's probably far enough back, where people would just kind of presume that they would win the elections that that because I mean you know, I've already bought off this person I've already tried out this person and every now and again they lose and just be surprised like what but I because they've grown complacent right ergo the idea uh, as presented is that this guy I, I don't remember his name I'm sorry Orcad or Ericad or whatever oh I have it right here Orac Orac that's the name um, was so complacent that he didn't have any bother and you'll notice that Kolos's argument is actually quite valid and interesting. Now, it doesn't change the legal heart of the case. One of the things that's one of those eh, problems that only really exists within legal land and not reality land is that in legal land, why tends to not matter as much as did. Let me, to use the most bare-bones stupid example ever, let's say that you uh, pickpocket someone. That's, that's theft. Well, let's say that you, and I forget the exact thing, because there's actually like classifications of larceny, but let's say you act, you pick up a wallet on the ground like, huh, and you don't know it's someone, but you hold on to it. Well, that's theft. It's just a lesser degree of theft. And it's supposed to have a gradient there, but what tends to be argued, especially by prosecutors, is, well, they still stole it. Therefore, they're still guilty, ignoring the whys and the wherefores. Whether this flies or not, that's usually up to the jury, but of course, there's no jury here, so. I bring all this up, though, because that becomes the prosecutor's argument. Or rather, the only part of his argument that's remaining after Kolos absolutely destroys his argument. Because the the prosecutor's core argument has been this entire time that Archer is an enemy of the Empire. They even emphasize it. What are they chanting? Enemy. And they, he keeps trying to rile up the crowd and keeps, keeps pointing out his entire focus, his entire emphasis is on how he is the enemy. Even when Archer is giving his testimony, he continues to push that. Kolos absolutely annihilates that argument by pointing out how much that this man has, in his meddling nuisance, nuisance nature, managed to prove through action, Klingons, proved through action that he is actually not an enemy, that he is in fact an ally and an advocate of the Empire. The mere fact that Duros was capable of testifying at all to this proves the fact that Archer is not an enemy of the Empire. And I do love the way that he Kolos flips that on the prosecution. It's a nice touch, and it's it's the second best part of the episode, I would say. Followed immediately by the first best part. Archer and Kolos. It's, it's funny how many best scenes in Trek, for me, are the scenes where it's just two people talking in a room, right? Archer and Kolos are just sitting there chatting. And this is when we have the thing, you know, my father was a teacher, my mother was a biologist... I became a defense attorney. I went into law. Now all young people want to take up weapons and have victory, any victory. And an emphasis on the way he puts that, because it's clear he is still a Klingon. He's still interested in victory, but actual victory, right? Victory earned, victory with actual honor, or even fake honor. Rather than just beating down a helpless person, you give the helpless person, you know, a weapon and say, defend yourself, and then you fight them, and then blah, blah, blah. I mean, that may, whether that's good or bad is, of course, up to you, but you can see how it is far more Klingon. And he laments how they've been shifting away from that mentality, especially in his lifetime. I love this scene because not only is it a great insight into Klingon culture, but it's also, well, it's one of the powers of a prequel, because we see here the beginnings of the downfall of the Klingon Empire, something I have talked about at length 
back in my Deep Space Nine videos. I commented extensively, especially about Esri Dax's great quote when it happened, but I also referenced it many other times because DS9 did a good job of showing the Klingon Empire in its death throes. Like the final, what we were effectively seeing was the end of the Klingon Empire and how uh, corrupt and decadent and just bad, just generally bad the Empire had become by DS9's time. And it makes sense. If you're paying attention, we saw the beginnings of that in TNG. This has been an arc, really. And now, TOS doesn't quite fit in here because of reasons that we will and have discussed over in the TS Ruminations, but there has been an arc between, well, effectively between Enterprise, TNG, and DS9 of the beginnings of the corruption, which we're seeing right here, the extent of the corruption, that was when Ch uh, Chancellor, Jim, uh, not Jim Peck, uh, what his name was, the Chancellor, the discommendation of Worf, you know, the Duras family's power, all of that, right? And, and the new Chancellor, when Gowron was introduced, we see how bad it's gotten. And by DS9 time, we've seen that it's gotten even worse, that the whole Empire is willing to go down the drain because of how corrupt and decadent and rotten of a beast it has become. And all of that is now traced back to here, this episode. And we really see the actual beginnings of that. Granted, it's been going on for a couple decades by the time this episode starts, but this is our first insight into it. Which brings me to an interesting point. So, the episode um, makes it very clear that, the, again, unintentional allegress is a corrupt, decadent system. What then happens is that they're like, we have to rescue the captain. And um, what you would normally expect here is the big action sequence where they go rescue the captain. To Paul vetoes that immediately, probably accurately. That would actually be a very stupid move, to be completely honest. And then they say, well, what about diplomatic ch channels? We've tried that. Well, no. They bribe a guy. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Ruripenthe, you probably do if you're watching this video, Ruripenthe is like the big one. That's, that's the big, the gulag for the Klingon Empire, even back in this era. It's the place where they put the, the worst criminals or the most politically expedient criminals in order to, you know, have them make dilithium happen and blah, blah, blah. It's this horrible, destructible, destructible, blachable place. Six-month lifespan. Need I say more? They could break someone out of the most heavily secured and worst prison in the Klingon Empire with a few bucks. Think about that. And I don't think that's on accident. This is why this ties in rather neatly, because this whole episode has been about how corrupt the Klingon Empire is getting, and they use that very corruption against them in order to rescue Archer. Cute. But then Kolos decides to stay. <laughs> There's some good character moments. I'm kind of skipping over, you know. All humans really are this stupid. <laughs> that got a laugh out of me. Um, but Kolos stays. Do you think that was the right call? Now, we won't really be seeing any more from Kolos in the future. He's, uh, you know, Hertzler only really had the one, uh, the one presence here. I don't think he's even mentioned in the future. I'm just checking my notes here. Yeah, no. There are, uh, he is mentioned in well, at least one of the books, which obviously I'm not covering because shows, but... This is kind of the end of Kolos, but I, I wonder if he was able to do exactly what he said. He served his sentence, went back to the Empire, and 
advocated for, you know, pushing against the corruption and making the empire about a thing. The reason I mention this is the empire will lurch on for, oh God, uh, over a hundred more years, a nice long chunk of time, right? As I mentioned, Enterprise, you know, TOS, TNG, DS9, and it doesn't really get to this bad or, or you know, the actual descent until DS9's time, right? The end of DS9, I feel like pointing out. And I bring that up because I wonder if the only reason the Klingon Empire was able to withstand as long as it did was because there were decent people like Kolos who were fighting to maintain it. Think about that. Now, bonus question. Do you think that's a good thing or not? Do you think it is a better thing that the Empire was able to withstand as long as it did in order to eventually become part of the you know the greater collective community and have the connections with the Federation that it eventually would and play its role in the Dominion War and blah, blah, blah? Or <laughs> do you think the Empire should have been allowed to collapse and die and you know just see what happens from the remains of that rather than this kind of lingering, you know, slow death with the occasional health potion shoved down its throat by people like Kolos. All of this is speculative, of course, but again, if you zoom the camera out and look at Star Trek's history, you can see the arc here. What do you guys think? No judgment, no no statements. I am actually legitimately curious. I liked this episode. It was a good one to go through, despite the editing thing I'll have to do later for the earlier bit. I'll see you guys next time.